Good morning. If you would take your copy of the scriptures and join me in the book of 1 Samuel, this morning we're going to be looking at chapters 31, and actually we're going to do something that may make some of you uncomfortable. We're also going to look at chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. The reason for that is that these two books that are divided in our English Bibles are actually one book in the Hebrew, and so the story continues, and we have to follow the story. So this will be our last Sunday, working through the text of Samuel, and then next week for Easter, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 3, looking um, at the rejoicing in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the week following, as you saw maybe on announcements this morning, then we are starting a series through the Gospel of John. And so looking forward to that time in God's Word. Um, This morning, as we look at this passage, I've already heard from several of you that it's like, uh, how are you going to do this? Because it's not a happy, happy account. In fact, everything from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1 to chapter 31 has been building to this moment. And it is a heavy word when God pronounces judgment on anyone. And sadly, today's the day that we see that judgment executed upon Saul. And not only him, but his family. And not only them, but the army of Israel. And not only on them, but the very people of Israel. This trickle-down ripple effect of sin is really a big, big theme throughout Scripture, Just as we saw in Genesis 3, by one man, as Paul says, one man's sin entered into the world. By that one man's sin, death has passed upon all because all have sinned. And we see that Saul's choices to reject God's word ultimately shaped not only his future, but the futures of countless others. And so here's what we see this morning in chapter 31 we see the ultimate price of sin is death. That takes us all the way through chapter 31 into verse 16 of chapter 1 in 2 Samuel. This this long extended passage highlights the point that the ultimate price of sin is death. And then as we look at chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, this is going to be a little tricky, so I might get confused I'm working on sleep deprivation about three hours from getting Jeff from Costa Rica. I didn't drive there. I just picked him up. They got back from Costa Rica on the mission trip, and then Natalie and Grace headed out to Indiana early, early, like 3.30 this morning. So um, I was up a lot last night. So if I slur, it's okay to laugh. If I say something wrong, please remind me afterward. Um, So... Here we have, uh, in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, in verse 17 through 27, we see a response to sin in the form of a lament. So we're going to really be front-loaded here under this first point of the ultimate price of sin is death. But then when we get to chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, in verses 17 through 27, we're going to slow down there on what is a lament and why Those who trust in God lament sin and its consequences. 
And I can't imagine a more timely text, honestly, given in what we as a nation have experienced just this last week. So, let's begin. Follow along as I read from 1 Samuel, chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it, And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head. And stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and, ba- and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. And after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me. And he called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, 
Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? He answered, I am the son of a sojourner in Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Let's stop there for a moment and let's unpack what we have just read here in these two chapters. So chapter 31 transports us from the end of chapter 30. They work together. You see how one comes before the other? All right. This may get me in trouble. Um, So there's a scene of celebration as David and his men are reunited with their families who had been taken by the Amalekites. And they're sending gifts to the, the lords and the elders of Judah. And we go from a scene of celebration to a scene of death in chapter 31 in verses 1 through 7. God's judgment falls upon Saul just as God had spoken through his prophet Samuel. And so in the first five verses, we see that the day of judgment has come. And we also see that not all mountain views are that pleasant. Not all mountain views inspire joy and wonder. Because as this chapter opens, we've given this wide-angle shot of Mount Gilboa, and we are watching as the Philistines are chasing the army of Israel, and men are dropping like flies. They're strewn across the mountain in verse 1. And then the eyes of the narrator, he takes us to the place where the Philistines had killed all three of Saul's sons. And then he zooms in even more on a mortally wounded Saul in verse 3 as the Philistines close in. And Saul, who is afraid of being captured and being tortured, told his armor bearer to kill him in verses 4 and 5. You see, Saul no doubt remembered what the Philistines had done to Samson when they finally caught him. They gouged out his eyes, they bound him up in shackles, and they led him away to grind grain in a mill, used him like an animal. And then what we're reading, Judges 16, 23, and 25, on a great day of feasting, the Philistines were offering a sacrifice to Dagon, their God. And they said, our God has given us this victory over Samson, so let's bring him out and let's make sport of him. Let's, let's have him entertain us this great day because our God has given our enemy into our hand. So Saul knew his fate if he fell into the hands of the Philistines, yet his armor bearer was not willing to stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed. 
And so Saul took his own life in verse 4. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he took his own life. And we are reminded in verses 6 and 7, as the narrator repeats for us all that has just happened in these five verses, he makes the point that Saul died, his sons died, and his men, his armor bearer and all his men, they all died on the same day together. And we are reminded of what Paul says in Romans 6.23. The first part of that verse says, the wages of sin is death. And Saul could not escape the day of judgment for himself. Although chapter 31 doesn't mention it, we who have studied through this and the reader of Samuel would know that this is actually the fulfillment of God's word through Samuel. If you go back to chapter 28, look at verses 18 and 19. Because Samuel gives this word from the Lord to Saul after Saul had sinned yet again. By calling upon Samuel through the the medium. And Samuel says to Saul in verse 18 of chapter 28, Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Now, chapter 28 is the night before chapter 31. We saw chapter 29 and 30, we have this excursion with David. It's clear, the narrator wants to make it clear for all of those new people into, under the David's monarchy that David was not responsible for Saul's death. David did not take the throne by force. He wasn't there. He wasn't a part of the action. First Chronicles chapter 10 says it a little differently. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and consulted with a medium seeking guidance. Galatians 6 warns us in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. This is such a tragic day that one man's sin has so horrifically affected countless others. Israel may fall on Gilboa. Saul may fall on his sword. But the word of the Lord will not fall. It will come to pass. This is, this is a heavy word because some of us think we can outgame God. And yet I just quoted to you from what Paul writes in Galatians 6. You cannot mock God. There will be a payday someday. And the purpose of working through a text like this is to call people to repentance, to prepare themselves for that day, knowing that the word of the Lord will not fail. How then should we order our lives? How then should we respond? And as I've mentioned, sadly, Saul's sin 
then the consequences of it didn't stop on the edge of the battlefield. As you look at verse 7, it also affected God's people. The Israelites who lived throughout the valley and even those beyond the Jordan River to the east, they saw the armies of Israel fall and shrink away and so they all fled their cities and the Philistines came and lived in them. So now, much of the northern territory of the Promised Land is under Philistine occupation. Families fled their farms, their businesses, their homes. Israel has suffered a great loss. Friends, sin is not a joke. And all sin leads to death. Someone here might say, yeah, but let me just illustrate this on a much smaller level. Smaller, we may think. Consider the fallout that comes from a lie. When people understand that you have taken advantage of them by lying to them, trust is broken. A lie can separate close friends, even families. And then the the ripple effect of that separation and that animosity between the the one who was lied to and the one who did the lying, it spreads out further than we can imagine. Now, if you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel wanted to be like all the other nations around them, right? They wanted a king who would fight their battles and who would lead them into war. They demanded that Samuel, who had just, by God's grace, delivered them from the enemy that he appoint for them a king. Their rejection of God led to an idolatrous desire. And what have we seen over the course of 1 Samuel, but what happens to idols? Do you not remember chapter 5 and verses 1 through 5, that the Philistine god Dagon fell, shattered before the ark of the Lord, of the living God? And now Israel's idol, Saul, lies dead on the side of the mountain. Our God will not tolerate any other gods before him. I find it tragic and compelling as well that 1 Samuel opens with a barren family in Elkanah and Hannah and then it closes with a barren family with Saul. Did you notice that? If you read through this I mean, here's a a woman and her husband who cannot have a child and she longs for it. And then what happens is that God divinely intervenes and he gives life to them through through children. And yet with Saul, God withdraws his hand of protection and he gave the life of Saul and his sons and the men of Israel into the hands of the Philistines who destroyed them. Jonathan suffered greatly because of his father, and yet we see that he was faithful to the very end. As the prince who would have inherited his father's throne, he willingly embraced God's choice in David. And we mourn his death, but we might be helped by hearing what Davis writes. He says, instead of viewing Jonathan as a man robbed of a kingdom he could not keep, We ought to see him as a man who entered a kingdom he could not lose. Isn't that a perspective? I wonder if God's Spirit could give us wisdom about such matters in our own lives. 
that he might reveal to us the the fleeting things that we so deeply desire that we are being called to lay down in order to embrace his eternal work and his blessings. Unlike Saul's sons and his soldiers, he took his own life. And although his suicide and that suicide of his armor bearer is not the point of the passage, I'd need to address this. The Bible doesn't redact or whitewash the sin of the people who are presented in the Scriptures. This is just one of many instances where sin is plainly recorded regardless of how unflattering it is. And the one constant of Scripture is this. It is going to continually reveal to us the righteousness of our God and the sinfulness of our hearts. And because, God, uh, because Saul had sinned, God had to judge him. And so we should not be surprised that the actions of Saul here in his desperation, after all, he was the man who ordered the murder of 85 priests, and that spilled over into an entire city of Nob being laid to waste, and every inhabitant, man, woman, and child, was killed. This is also the man who repeatedly tried to kill an innocent David and even in his anger tried to kill his own son. So is it any surprise that when all hope is lost that Saul viewed death as the only option? And yet the Bible repeatedly states that God is the Lord of life. So just listen as I just bring out three passages Genesis 2.7 says that the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 20, Moses reminded the people of Israel that they were to love the Lord their God and obey his voice and cling to him because he is your life and length of days. And even in 1 Samuel, we hear the wise words of Abigail who reminded David, David, your life and the life of your enemies are in the Lord's hands in chapter 25 and verse 29. So the Bible says a lot that informs the Christian's understanding of life, of human life. Suffice to say, because God has made man in his image He has placed inestimable value on each one of us. Therefore, the person who takes their own life takes the place of God. And suicide is a sin against God. To be clear, it's not the unpardonable sin, but nonetheless, it is a great wicked deed. Now, before we move on, there's so much more that could be talked about regarding suicide, but this isn't the point of the passage. But let me just say this. If you are struggling with some kinds of thoughts, suicidal thoughts, please, please tell someone. Reach out to an elder or a pastor here at South Canyon. There's a national hotline devoted to this. Dial 988. If, if, if you are someone who's struggling with the, the sinful choice of a loved one who took their life and now you're trying to process through this, friend, let me just point you to some great resources there. 
at biblicalcounselingcoalition.org. They have many, many resources that um, will help people think about suicide prevention and then grieve the loss of a loved one to it. And we even have ordered some, but because of the storm, it got delayed. And so we hope to have some in the Missions Cafe later this week. But we must continue. And what follows in verses 8 through 13 is Saul's fears. Although some honored him, some abused him. The Philistines demonstrate their hatred of Saul by abusing his corpse in verses 8 through 10. When they come to strip the dead for treasures and trophies of war... They found the bodies of Saul and his sons, and they put them on public display. See, in ancient times, when nations warred against one another, it was believed to be a holy war because it was the gods of the two opponents that were actually fighting out through the people. And so the Philistines believed that they had victory over Yahweh and Saul because Ashtaroth, the goddess of war, gave them that victory. And so they put Saul's head and armor in her temple. I don't know if they changed gods because Dagon was broke. You know, I, just part of me wonders, where did Ashtaroth come from when they had been so loyal to Dagon? But in any event, they fastened next, they fastened the bodies of Saul and his sons to the wall of Bethshan. Now that means nothing to us except for the fact that there are two major roads running through this part of Israel, and Beth Shan sits right there. An east-west route that goes from the Jezreel Valley to Gilead, and then this north-south route that runs through the Jordan Valley. And so here is a major crossroads, and everybody's going to go by, and they're going to see these bodies. And they're going to know who they are, which brings shame upon Israel. And they're going to know who killed them, which brings glory to the Philistines and serves as a warning. As soon as the men of Jabesh-Gilead heard about this, verse 11 through 13, they traveled to that city by night. They took down those bodies. They brought them back to Jabesh. They burned them and buried them so that they would never again be exposed to such shame and abuse. And then they ceremonially purified themselves by fasting for seven days. Why did these men do that? Well, if we remember back in chapter 11, some 30 plus years earlier, Saul delivered the city of Jabesh Gilead from Nahash, the Ammonite, and its citizens never forgot. Their act of valor and honor reflected their deep gratitude and respect for Saul. And it also provides for us a ray of hope in a very, very dark passage. Although Saul did not live an honorable life, although he died a tragic hero, he was honored by those who benefited from his heroic leadership. Now in the story of Saul, we see how sin leads to death, not only for Saul and those around him, but also for the people of Israel. The man who had rejected God's word found himself rejected by God. Instead of hearing God's words of counsel, Saul heard God's word of judgment. Instead of experiencing God's deliverance as he had previously, Saul experienced God's wrath through the Philistines. Instead of an enduring kingdom, Saul lost his throne and his heirs. Doesn't this confirm what we read what was quoted from Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death? 
And since all have sinned, Romans 3.23, we will all experience death unless God intervenes. And thankfully, our God, the God of the Bible, is greater than any idol made of wood, stone, gold, or of flesh. And although Israel's idol died on that mountain that day, God was not going to stop saving his people. And here's the hope of the last part of Romans 6.23. True, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus, our Lord. So let's take a moment. We've looked at the king that Israel wanted, the idol king who is now dead because of his sin. So let's take a moment to consider King Jesus and his excellencies. This comes from the dictionary of biblical imagery. It was a helpful resource because I, did, I forgot about this. But in the Gospels, there's this parable about a strong man who is overpowered by an even stronger man. And in Luke's version, the stronger one attacks the strong man And guess what he does? He takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. You see how this connects to our passage? Where Saul's armor was stripped off of his body, his enemies are dividing up the spoils. But unlike Saul, Jesus is the stronger man. Jesus is the one who has defeated Satan and stripped Satan's armor. And the imagery of stripping a spiritual enemy of weapons and armor may actually lie behind what we read in Colossians 2.15, where God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus' death on the cross. So Jesus, we see him as we look toward next Sunday. He's naked, shamed, unarmed, and unarmored. He's a warrior who is hung on a cross, and yet he is the real victor over the powers of this age. And Christians are to follow our victorious Christ by putting on the spiritual armor and engaging in the battle where power is found in weakness, where victory is comes through Christian virtues and the armorance of the faith, according to Ephesians 6, 11, and 13. You see, as Tanner preached a few weeks ago, Christ's death and resurrection has placed his followers at the turning point of the ages. Paul writes this in Romans 10, or Romans 13, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And although our war against the enemy continues, praise God, the crucial battle against Satan has been won. Jesus has defeated Satan. His fate is determined, and the word of the Lord will not fail. The Apostle John writes, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So how is it that sinners who have fallen perhaps into the hands of an angry God, how is it that they can escape? How is it that they can lay hold of such salvation? By confessing our sins and asking God for his gift of life through Jesus Christ. Like Jesus' disciples in Acts, 
just as they had a transforming encounter with the risen Jesus that turned them from cowards into bold witnesses. We too need a transforming encounter with the risen Jesus. We also need to trust the Father's word and the Son's work. Because God makes this promise to sinners through Jesus. Here it is. To all who do receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, we've seen what the Philistines did to Saul and his sons and what the men of Jabesh Gilead did. What will David do as we look at chapter 1 of 2 Samuel? We already read in the first 16 verses, David, three days after the battle, a messenger arrives in David's camp. David's camp. He's bearing the marks of a mourner, and he's carrying a message of death in the first four verses. David simply asks, how did you come by this information? And then in verses 6 through 10, the man gives his story. I've taken Saul's life because he asked me to. Here's his crown, and here's the armband that he wore that set him apart as the king. Now, David and his men, what do they do in verses 11 through 12? They start mourning. They mourn the deaths of Saul, Jonathan, and the people of Israel and the house of Israel. Now, maybe this response surprised the messenger, but it doesn't surprise us. Because in spite of the difficult relationship that David had with Saul, he consistently showed covenant love and loyalty to both Jonathan and to Saul. And as we've seen, he's had nothing to do with Saul's death. He's truly stricken with grief and mourning. And what we see in verses 13 through 16 is that lying lips invite judgment. No doubt this man believed he was bringing good news to David and would be richly rewarded. Clearly, he's unaware that David had many opportunities to take Saul's life but would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. And although he presented the crown and the bracelet as evidence, we know based on chapter 31, verses 4 and 5, that he was lying. He didn't take Saul's life. He wasn't there when Saul was living. One could even argue that David knew he was lying. Perhaps when he said that he was an Amalekite, and when Saul found out that he was a Amalekite, he said, take my life. Now that would run kind of counter to what we've learned about Saul and his relationship with the Amalekites, wouldn't it? Or maybe it was when he said that chariots and horsemen happened to be on Mount Gilboa. Well, it's true, the Philistines had chariots, and that allowed them to dominate the Jezreel Valley where it was open, but mountains are no place for a chariot. And David knew the terrain of the land. They were useless. Regardless, the man confessed to murdering Israel's king, and David ordered him killed. And so, in chapter 31, God uses a wicked instrument to bring judgment He used the Philistines to execute divine judgment. And in chapter 1, God uses his anointed king to execute righteous judgment. As we get to verses 17, I want to read this and then we'll make some observations. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said... 
Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothes you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. David knew Saul's death was the result of his sin and the righteous judgment of God. And yet it was right for David to mourn the sin and its consequences. He composed a poem of lament, and we're told that he taught it to the people of Judah. I'm going to quote from Dale Davis again. Appreciate his words here. He says, grief not only erupts, it also abides. And because it abides, there must be some mechanism by which God's people can express that grief. I've been both personally in our family and then pastorally in ministry in rooms where loved ones are given the news of a tragic death. Or they are saying goodbye to someone that they've loved who's fighting against disease. I know the eruptions of the heart. Why, God, the screams... The, the cries, the, the shrieks and the howls, the tears, and the stone-faced soberness of loss of all words. Davis goes on to say, for those of us who have experienced, I'm sorry, for those of us who have experienced sorrow and wounds, we understand that those losses are not miraculously healed in a short period of time. Some of those losses are felt for a lifetime. And that is why we as a church need to be patient with our brothers and sisters as they grieve. Often people are urged to move on and get over their loss instead of being taught how to lament. So what is a lament? What makes it different than just us spontaneously saying things, spontaneously reacting I think Davis provides a helpful definition. A lament is a formal expression of grief or distress. One that can be written, read, learned, practiced, repeated. A lament differs 
from informal, spontaneous, immediate outbursts of of grief. It is a vehicle for the mind as well as for the emotions. And so it's an expression of thoughtful grief, where words are carefully selected, where they're crafted, where they're honed to express loss as closely yet fully as possible. Isn't it interesting? One of the questions in our life groups this week will be the contrast between our culture as churches here in the U.S. where so much emphasis in music is written about praise and worship and happiness and joy in Jesus. And there's a scarcity of anything being published and written about lamenting. And yet, how many of us have suffered? How many of us are living with loss? How many of us need help to lament sin and its consequences in our life or in the lives of our loved ones? Why isn't someone stepping into that void and helping us, as David did Israel, to rightly lament the death of Saul and Jonathan. David was determined not only to express his heartfelt sorrow for the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, but as you look at verses 19 and 20, David knows what's going on in Gath and Ascalon. He knows that people are celebrating there in those cities. And so David is also going to write something about this tragic time, and he wants to make sure he teaches it to the fighting men of Judah in verses 17 and 18. Why would David want to fill men going into battle with the tragic story of how their king was killed? Here's why. Because David knows this won't be the last time Israel fights the Philistines. David wants to put a passion in these men. Rehearse this well. Know this well. This will not happen again. This cannot happen again. Like the Texans crying out, remember the Alamo. Or even in modern day Israel, Israeli soldiers are taken up to the top of Masada where they swear their oath of allegiance, a place that was marked as the last holdout against the Romans. This lamentation would function as a rallying cry as well as a cry of mourning. Looking at verses 22 and 23, David celebrates the skill in battle, the military prowess of Saul and Jonathan, and then he celebrates their character. And I think in particular in verse 23, David's emphasizing the fact of Jonathan's loyalty, which ought to encourage every single Christian. I mean, you look at Jonathan. He was loyal even when it was unrewarded. His dad is chucking spears at him, literally. He's being loyal to his father even when it appeared hopeless. Saul would not pass down the throne to Jonathan. Jonathan was with his father on that last day. Now Christian, don't we have an even greater motivation for loyalty to our King Jesus? Because he's promised to reward us. And he's already defeated the enemy. His cause will be victorious. So be encouraged. Notice in verse 24 that David instructed the daughters of Israel to weep over Saul. But in verses 25 through 27, it's David who turns and weeps over Jonathan. Saul had clothed the women of Israel in fine garments of gold, uh, fine garments and gold. 
But it was Jonathan who had demonstrated a covenant love and faithfulness to David that surpassed any faithfulness a wife could ever show her husband. As I said before, Jonathan was devoted to David. David, you will be king of Israel. I know this for sure. And I embrace my role as second in your kingdom. What humility. David knew this truth. Matthew Henry made the statement, the greater the love, the greater the grief. And so when we bear one another's burdens, our hearts are moved for our brothers and sisters, and we cry out to our Father on their behalf. We do this corporately in our Sunday morning pastoral prayers. Tanner just led us through that. We do this on Sunday nights, and we do this in our life groups. We intercede for unknown believers in Nashville or around the world, brothers and sisters who are caught up in the political intrigues of war and politics or who are being persecuted for their faith. We do this as we pray for our brethren who are sick. Even this morning, I've been praying for my sister over here who I know is in great pain. We do this as we pray for our families who are dealing with crises in their marriage or in their homes. We do this because sin and death is all around us. Whether it's school shootings or sexual abuse, whether it's the loss of a loved one, Christians, we need to learn how to lament. Our world wants us to move too quickly from this. Our world has no mechanism to address it. Is it any wonder when there's injustice like this, there's riotings, there's more violence, there's more anger, and people, they're just so pent up, someone's got to pay for this. And the innocent are caught up in their anger. We as Christians have to figure out how to express thoughtful grief using words carefully selected, crafted, honed to express the loss as closely yet fully as possible. And when we rightly lament sin and its consequences, I believe two things will happen. It will not only provide a helpful tool for us Christians in our mourning, but it will provide an opportunity for us to teach the world how to mourn without burning down everything that is good. So I don't have the answers. We come to the end of this tragic story and we see God is faithful to keep his word. And we see that though sin leads to death, there is hope through Jesus to escape the death you deserved. And we call on people everywhere to repent and believe in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then we as Christians are being called to understand that it is right to lament sin and its consequences. Lord, we pray that you would help us in these things. For only you are sufficient. We pray that you would not only lead those that may be here who are not a part of your family, we pray that you would, Spirit would come upon them and instruct them in why the gospel matters and in how Jesus has delivered them from the wrath yet to come that they would embrace it 
and cry out for the forgiveness of sins. We pray also, Lord, that you would comfort your people. Maybe even this lament that David writes here would be a great means of stirring the musicians in our congregation, the theologians in our congregation, to help us write and think rightly about sin and its consequences, to give your people a mechanism by which they can mourn. Lord, we know that our weeping is for a moment. It endures for a night, as the psalmist said. But in the morning, joy comes. In the morning, we will see you and we will be made like you. And Lord, we pray, oh, we pray as your people, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name, amen. I realize this is a heavy word. I, in some ways, it's nice that um, I don't get to pick the texts. Because we would never talk about anything like this. It would always be sunshine and roses. But there is value in going to the house of mourning. And so we're there this morning. So let's take a moment to reflect, and then Joel is going to lead us in our final song.